Chapter 11, Part 6 of History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Anna Roberts. Chapter 11, Controversies of the Church, Part 6, Pelagianism. The relation of man's will to God's will is a mystery which has exercised the wit of man in almost all ages, though it did not become the occasion of discussion and division in the church until the beginning of the fifth century. Up to that time theologians and simple Christians had alike been contented to believe that both human effort and divine grace were necessary for the work of salvation, without attempting to allot to each its exact influence. This acquiescence was brought to an end by St. Augustine. He, a man of warm feeling and vivid imagination, supremely conscious of the divine mercy by which he had been brought from darkness to light, eminently capable of giving an intellectual form to his convictions, and of stating a belief in a definite proposition, gave in his teaching so much weight to the grace of God in leading us to good, that he left, or seemed to leave, nothing to the will of man. The great problem of grace and free will had not indeed presented itself to him in the early days after his conversion with the force with which it came upon him later in life, but before he wrote his confessions he had reached, perhaps through his Neoplatonic studies, the conclusion that as all good comes from God, from him comes even the gift of faith, the beginning of good in man. His opinions were developed and defined in the course of controversy, but they did not originate in it. It was probably about the year 405 that Pelagius, a British monk of ascetic life, began at Rome to exhort men to leave the worldly and frivolous life which too many of them led. Often he received the reply, It is too hard for us, we cannot do it, we are but men, sinful flesh doth grossly close us in. He heard, text missing, famous words repeated, Grant what thou commandest, and command what thou wilt, and was offended thereat. This view seemed to him to leave nothing for man to do, obedience became almost mechanical. Here two great principles are found opposed. St. Augustine's was, in the main, that of St. Paul, that not he himself lived, but Christ lived in him, but his early Manichaean training had given his mind a bias which led him to regard man too much as the sport of hostile forces, a good and an evil. Pelagius's view of life tended to approximate to that of the old pagan philosophers, especially to that of the Stoics. In ancient philosophic systems man is always regarded as the master of his own destiny. It is always presumed that if he sees the right he will pursue it. No account is taken of the weakness which arises from the defects of human nature. And this contrast of principles was no doubt heightened by the character of those who were the most prominent disputants. St. Augustine was eager and earnest, sympathizing keenly with the weakness and the struggles of the multitude who sought his counsel. Pelagius was a monk. So far as we can gather from our imperfect sources, he was a man of calm temperament to whom the great struggle of the spirit against the flesh was comparatively unknown. He was anxious to promote virtuous living, to rouse an enervated generation to the need of strenuous effort and self-denial, to forward the half-stoical teaching which had unconsciously influenced so many educated Christians. He had studied Greek theology to an extent very unusual in the West, and is thought to have derived some of his opinions from Theodore of Mopsuestia. Calestius, whom we constantly find by the side of Pelagius, and who probably exaggerated his opinions, had been an advocate in Rome until he was converted by Pelagius. Both Pelagius and Calestius were laymen when they first became known to us. When Pelagius controverted to St. Augustine's opinions, his opposition does not seem to have occasioned any excitement at Rome. He appears to have been cautious and circumspect, but his pupil Calestius was younger, bolder, full of the zeal of a new convert, and not afraid of the logical consequences of his principles. 
in him appears a new feature of the great controversy. He was understood to deny the transmission of Adam's sin to his descendants, and from this to draw the inference that in the baptism of infants there is no remission of sins. About the year 411 we find both Pelagius and Celestius in Africa. Pelagius, who was no lover of strife, seems to have left that province when he found that his presence there occasioned dissension, but Celestius sought to be appointed a presbyter in Carthage. There, in the year 412, Paulinus, a deacon of Milan, before a synod over which the bishop of Carthage presided, charged him with holding the following erroneous opinions, that Adam was created mortal, and would have died even if he had not sinned, that the sin of Adam injured himself alone and not mankind, that newborn children are in the same state of innocency in which Adam was before his fall, that all do not die through the death or fall of Adam, nor through the resurrection of Christ shall all rise, that the kingdom of heaven may be attained through the law as well as through the gospel, that even before the coming of the Lord a man might live without sin if he would. Celestius, admitted to plead his own cause, declared that he held that infants ought to be baptized. The transmission of Adam's sin he considered an open question, since he had heard Catholics both affirm and deny it. In the end he was excommunicated by the council, and passed over to Ephesus, whence, after becoming a presbyter, he betook himself to Constantinople. Pelagius, meantime, had gone into Palestine, whence he wrote a conciliatory letter to Augustine, who replied, if with considerable reserve, at any rate amicably. He also attempted to become friendly with Jerome, but as he had already been admitted to the friendship of John of Jerusalem, with whom Jerome had a quarrel, he found there no favor. Jerome wrote fiercely against him, connecting him, probably not unjustly, with the already suspected origin. A statement of his own opinions, which Celestius had circulated, and which became widely known, also tended to bring the more cautious Pelagius into ill repute. Orosius, the well-known pupil and friend of Augustine, at last brought it to pass that John cited Pelagius to answer for himself before a meeting of the Presbytery of Jerusalem. Before this assembly, Pelagius declared that he believed a sinless life to be impossible without the grace of God, and was thereupon acquitted. Orosius had to speak through an interpreter, and probably failed to make his audience understand the importance of a speculation altogether unfamiliar to them. But the opponents of Pelagius did not rest. In December of the same year they brought his doctrines before a Palestinian synod at Diospolis, the ancient Lydda. He did not deny that he held the opinions attributed to him, but was able so to explain them that the assembled prelates, fourteen in number, declared his orthodoxy unimpeachable. The propositions of Celestius, which had been condemned at Carthage, were then produced, and Pelagius was asked whether he assented to them. Some of them he expressly rejected. As to others, he held that he ought not to be questioned, since the sayings were none of his, but he nevertheless anathematized those who held them. The synod thereupon decided that he was a true Catholic, and worthy of admission to communion. His mode of thought was, in fact, much more constant than St. Augustine's with that prevailing in the East. But in Africa the decisions of Diospolis were very far from satisfactory. In the year 416, synods assembled at Carthage and at Milivis. At Milivis, Augustine was present. But these assemblies condemned Pelagius and appealed for support to Innocent, Bishop of Rome. He received the appeal with delight, regarding it as an acknowledgment that nothing could be finally concluded by a provincial synod without the assent of the See of Rome and at once decided that Pelagius and Celestius should be excommunicated until they had extricated themselves from the snare of the devil. Upon this Pelagius sent to Rome his ably drawn confession of faith, with a treatise in defense of it. 
Some of the things laid to his charge he declared to be inventions of the enemy, others he explained away, but he adhered to his main proposition, that all men had received from God such a power of will as to enable them to perform good works, while Christians had special means of grace. This document never came into the hands of Innocent, he was dead before it reached Rome. It was received by his successor, Zosimus. At the same time, Calestius softened some of his more offensive propositions, especially with regard to infant baptism, and the result was that Zosimus, at a Roman synod, restored both him and Pelagius to communion, and blamed the Africans for their too hasty zeal. In Carthage there was great indignation, and a synod convened to consider the matter refused to repeal the former decision. This energetic resistance daunted the Pope, who now wrote that the Africans had misunderstood him, if they supposed that he had come to a final decision in the matter of Calestius. The case was still undecided. Immediately on the receipt of this epistle, a council was held, attended by more than two hundred bishops from all the provinces of Africa, at which not only was Pelagianism condemned, in the most direct and unambiguous terms, but appeals to Rome were forbidden on pain of excommunication. A fresh person now appeared on the scene. The emperor put forth a rescript condemning the new heretics. Zosimus thereupon faced about. He joined in the excommunication of Pelagius and Calestius, having discovered that such matters as grace, free will, and original sin were of the essence of the faith, and required all bishops to subscribe his circular letter of condemnation. Eighteen refused, among them a very notable person, Julian of Eclanum. He was more vigorous and downright than the cautious Pelagius, and more wary than the fiery Calestius. He had considerable dialectic power, and was never weary of discussing and defining. This prelate wrote in the name of the eighteen dissenting bishops two very frank letters to the Pope, not, however, maintaining all the propositions of Calestius. From this time Julian becomes a prominent figure. St. Augustine, who was a friend of Julian's family, replied to his letters with gentleness and moderation. But Julian, a rash youth, as St. Augustine calls him, had no reverence for the greatest man in Christendom. He drew remorselessly all the logical consequences of his doctrines, and pointed out the Manichaean mode of thought which was latent in them. Augustine protested that he had no conscious leaning to Manichaeism, but it was not easy to show that no relics of his Manichaean training lingered in his mind. From this arose a controversy which lasted as long as Augustine lived, and in the stress of which he developed the decidedly predestinarian views which are found in his later treatises. The end of Pelagius is obscure, he simply vanishes from history. The unwearied Callistius, though banished from Italy, was able to induce Pope Callistinus to investigate the matter afresh. By this, however, he gained nothing, and departed to Constantinople, which, as Julian and other friends also settled there, became the headquarters of the Pelagian camp. The friendship which the patriarch Nestorius showed them had important consequences. On the one hand it drew on Nestorius the displeasure of the Pope, on the other it brought upon the Pelagians the suspicion of Nestorianism. It was perhaps in consequence of this supposed connection that the followers of Nestorius and of Calestius were condemned together at the Council of Ephesus in 431. In spite, however, of this mention in an ecumenical council, there were probably few theologians in the East who had studied Pelagianism, and still fewer who sided with Augustine. The positions of the Pelagians, which were condemned, were, in brief, one, that the grace of God is not absolutely necessary for every man, whether before or after baptism, in order to his eternal salvation, and, two, that there is no hereditary transmission of the sin of Adam, and therefore that in the baptism of infants there is not, strictly, any remission of sins. 
On the other hand, the doctrine of St. Augustine was, that mankind has become, through the fall of Adam, a mass of sin, so that man cannot turn and prepare himself by his own natural strength to faith and calling upon God, and that we have no power to do good works pleasant and acceptable to God without the grace of God, through Christ, preventing us that we may have a good will, and working with us when we have that good will. We need for our salvation to use the common terms, grace prevenient and grace cooperant. This grace is freely given, not for any merit in them, to a certain fixed number of persons who are called, chosen, justified, sanctified, and brought to everlasting life, in accordance with God's eternal decree. In baptism, the laver of regeneration, the taint of original sin is washed away, but the capacity for actual sin remains. Renewal is still needed. Pelagianism was condemned, but Augustinianism was not received as the doctrine of the Catholic Church. The doctrine of predestination, of irresistible grace given to a limited number, seemed to many something new and startling. Even in the lifetime of Augustine, the opposition to his innovation, as many thought it, made itself felt. Was then the human will, it was asked, altogether inoperative in the work of salvation? Were good works altogether superfluous? Was it possible for men to sit with their hands in their laps, making no effort to obey their Lord's commands, and yet be saved? The monks of Hadramentum in North Africa in particular seem to have held that such was St. Augustine's teaching, and to have drawn the inference that it was useless to attempt the conversion of a sinner, except by intercessory prayer. Augustine, hearing of their perversion, as he deemed it, of his words, wrote to them, explaining that he was by no means indifferent as to the life of believers, that a child of God must feel himself impelled by the Holy Spirit to do right, that men who have not such grace ought to pray that they may receive it, but he still maintained that the bestowal of such grace depends wholly upon God's eternal decree. Soon afterwards, Prosper and other friends informed him that in Marseilles, and elsewhere in southern Gaul, the doctrine of irresistible grace was not accepted, because it seemed to leave no room for exhortations to Christian life. Augustine replied in such a way as to strengthen the hands of his friends, while he gave fresh offence to his opponents. Soon afterwards he died, leaving disciples to carry on the war, who resembled their master rather in zeal than in ability. The monks of southern Gaul now broke out into more open opposition, it is easy to understand how St. Augustine's doctrine presented itself to ascetics trained mainly under Greek influence. Among these, the two most distinguished were John Cassian, the father of South Gallican monasticism, and Vicentius of Larens, a monastery on an island not far from Antibes. The former had already stated his views on absolute predestination and the doctrines which follow from it. He was offended at unconditional predestination, limited grace, and the bondage of the human will. The grace of God is, he said, indispensably necessary to our salvation. Still, the good will, good thoughts, right belief which prepare for the reception of the grace of God are attainable by man. Grace is necessary for the perfecting, but not for the beginning of our faith. It is only those who strive to enter in who are helped by grace. It works with man's will. It is only exceptionally that God's grace goes before, occasioning the first exertion of man's will, and even then it is not irresistible. It is a fundamental truth that God wills the salvation of all men, and not of a certain limited number only. As to the fall, he taught that the sin of Adam and Eve has corrupted the whole race, and occasioned an irresistible propensity to sin. Still, man's nature is not so wholly corrupt that it retains no capacity for good. In short, Cassian was more alive than most of his contemporaries to the truth that God's judgments are far above out of our sight, and that the mystery of the coexistence of man's free will and God's omnipotence cannot be explained by a sharply defined theory. Perhaps, in his anxiety to avoid fatalism, he somewhat tended towards justification by our own works. 
Vincentius, in a treatise which is now probably the best known of all the writings of that age, discussed the whole question of the test of heresy. His general teaching may be summed up in the words, Innovation is heresy. Innovators may quote scripture to their purpose, but if their opinions differ from those of the fathers who have lived holily, wisely, and consistently in the faith and communion of the Catholic Church, they are heretics. Against such a consent no holy and learned man, bishop, confessor, or martyr though he be, is to be listened to for an instant. And he condemns under his canon those who declare that in their society there is so great, so special, so personal an influx of the grace of God, that without toil, without zeal, without earnestness, though they neither ask nor seek nor knock, their votaries are held up by angels, so that they dash not their foot against a stone. The reference to some who held a perversion of Augustinian theology is manifest, but it is also tolerably clear that Vincentius refers to a sect, and not to those doctors within the church who defended the views of Augustine. After the death of Augustine, his friend Prosper of Aquitaine became the principal champion of Augustinianism. He admitted that his master had spoken somewhat harshly when he said that God did not will the salvation of all men, and he represented that predestination was to life and not to death, that God's choice was not capricious, but just and righteous. He failed to convince the monks, but he succeeded in obtaining a letter from Pope Calistinus, in which the opponents of Augustinism were blamed, while little was said as to the main points in the dispute. After this, Prosper again replied to Cassian, maintaining with considerable ability his Augustinian views, and then retired from the conflict. The unknown writer of the treatise on the calling of the Gentiles sought to reconcile the proposition that God wills that all men should be saved, with the fact that all men are not saved. The book shows, at any rate, that some of the Augustinians were conscious of the difficulty of their position, and it was no doubt written in the interests of peace. On the other hand, there appeared, probably about the year 445, a book called Predestinatus, in which a forged Augustinian treatise, setting forth fatalist doctrine in a form which no genuine Augustinian would recognize, was criticized from a Pelagian point of view. What was the effect of this unprincipled work we have no means of knowing, but we know that the monks of southern Gaul held their ground, and produced in Faustus, bishop of Riez, their ablest champion. This able and excellent prelate, who took part in all the controversies of his time, had been abbot of Larens, and in his see never forgot his love for the monastic life. He opposed both the teaching of the Pelagians, and the immoral doctrine, as he held it to be, of absolute predestination and the utter annihilation of the human will. It was no doubt under his influence that a synod at Arles, about the year 475, and another at Lyons, condemned the predestinarian error, and it was to defend their decision that he wrote his treatise on grace and free will. His contention is that, granting that man since the fall is unable to attain salvation by his own power, he is still capable of resisting or yielding to the grace of God. Though it be true that without grace man cannot turn to God, still grace will be given through means such as preaching and the threatening of the law. To those who, like the monks, prided themselves on their works, he says, What have we that we have not received? While in Gaul the middle party, with the powerful aid of Faustus, held its own, in Africa the tradition of Augustine was still lively, and in Rome his name at least carried weight. In the early years of the fifth century certain Scythian monks, who had already fomented dissension in Constantinople, mingled in the fray in the west. Their leader was Maxentius. These monks handed to the legate of Pope Hormistus in Constantinople a statement of their belief, in which they emphatically rejected the views of those, Faustus of Riez is especially censured, who denied the absolute necessity of divine grace to begin the work of salvation, and said that it is for man to will, for God to finish the work. Four of their number journeyed to Rome, where they found no favor. 
Their statement, however, found much acceptance among the African bishops who, under pressure of the Vandal invasion of Africa, had found refuge in Sardinia, especially with Fulgentius of Ruspe, their champion, a man of considerable intellectual power. He wrote not only against Pelagius, but against Faustus, whom, without naming, he accused of depreciating God's grace in comparison with man's powers. When Possessor, an African bishop, wrote to Hormistus, asking his judgment on the matters stirred by the Scythian monks, the Pope replied with very great caution, referring to Augustine as an exponent of the belief of the Roman Catholic Church in regard to grace and free will. His caution brought out a reply from Accentius, which was at any rate sufficiently outspoken. If, as he said, the writings of Augustine were to be taken as a standard, Faustus was beyond all doubt a heretic." Fulgentius continued the controversy against the middle party, in certain treatises in which, while strongly maintaining Augustinian predestination, he attempted to show that it did not involve predestination to sin. The African bishops, also, from their Sardinian exile, sent a declaration to Constantinople, in which they directed attention to Hormistus's acceptance of Augustine as a standard, and drew the inference that Faustus, so far as he differed from him, must be a heretic." Gradually, even in Gaul itself, the very focus of the opposition, there arose a reaction in favor of Augustinism, the leaders of which were Avitus of Vienne and Caesarius of Arles, the latter of whom was favored by Pope Felix IV. In the year 529, on the occasion of the consecration of a church, a council was held at Orange in the province of Arles, over which Caesarius presided as metropolitan. The conclusions were subscribed by fourteen bishops and eight men of illustrious rank, including Liberius, the prefect of the Gauls and founder of the church. These canons, which follow the general lines of a document sent down from Rome, contain an unambiguous acceptance of the Augustinian doctrine of original sin and of the impotence of man's will to turn to good, so that faith itself is a gift of grace. But they do not admit a predestination to evil. Those who do evil do it of their own free will." and they lay down that all baptized persons receive through Christ such a gift of grace that they may, if they will, fulfill all the conditions necessary for salvation. These conclusions were confirmed by the Roman bishop, Boniface II. A council at Valencia, which took place about the same time, and was attended not only by the bishops of the province of Vienne, but by representatives of the province of Arles, made decrees in a similar sense. Pelagianism was thought to be at an end." The Pelagian controversy constitutes an epoch in the history of dogma. Hitherto dogmatic contests had been almost wholly about the object of Christian faith, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The opinions of Pelagius were, in fact, not recognized at first as dogmatic, either by himself or by others. They belonged, it was thought, to that region of theological opinion within which men may lawfully differ. And the language used on both sides was full of unobserved ambiguities. Liberty was sometimes taken to mean the power of willing freely, sometimes to mean the power of acting as one wills. It is commonly used to designate freedom from external coercion, but St. Augustine uses it to designate freedom from the power of sin. The time had not yet come for men to recognize an antimony of reason, to admit that the laws of the human mind may force us to acknowledge truths which are to our limited faculties incompatible. Since the existence of antimonies has been admitted, it has come to be felt by the thoughtful everywhere, that they who discuss fixed fate, free will, foreknowledge, absolute, will find no end in wandering mazes lost. The extreme predestinarian views have consequently come to be merely opinions of sects and parties. Even the immense authority of St. Augustine could not induce men to accept frankly all the consequences which were drawn from his theory of man's lost and ruined condition. His views in their origin did not satisfy the rule of Vincentius, 
they had not been accepted at all times by all men in all places, and in fact they never became Catholic. We see plainly enough in the works of Gregory the Great that he labors in vain to adopt Augustine's views in their integrity, almost in spite of himself he addresses men as if they were free to receive and obey his exhortations, and so to attain salvation. End of chapter 11, part 6